Join me in prayer. Gracious and most merciful Father, incline our hearts to your word and away from our self-centred desires. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may taste and see that you are good. Teach us your way so that we live according to your truth. Unite our divided hearts to fear you. And satisfy us with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice in you amidst the sufferings and trials of this world. Amen. Before we jump into our passage today, we need to back up just a little. We need to recall what has come before. Uh, notice the transition words, for this reason. Uh, what reason? God's lavish grace is the reason. Verse, I'll just read verses 3 and 6. Wonderful is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to adoption, to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of of his glorious grace. God has favoured his people with every spiritual blessing. He chose to save them before they were born. He predestined them for adoption as heirs. He redeemed and pardoned them. He gave his spirit as a seal guaranteeing their inheritance. And all of it is according to his will. All of it is by grace. All of it is given by God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, undeserved, unmerited, unsought. All given in Christ. God's people have nothing apart from Christ. This is the reason behind Paul thanking the Father. And he asks him for certain things. He thanks him and he asks. So we begin with thanks. Always thank God for his sovereign saving grace in the lives of those who belong to him. He thanks God, specifically the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He thanks him. Why? Because it is from the Father, through Christ, that the gospel has been told that they have been given all of these mercies and blessings. And Paul identifies two crucial responses in the believers that demonstrate or show that they are the recipients of this grace, the recipients of these blessings. Verse 15 and 16, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped thanking or I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Their faith in the Lord Jesus, their love toward the saints, is God's work. So he thanks God for them because he sees it in them. He thanks God for their 
faith that reveals his grace. They are trusting Jesus to be all that he said he would be in the gospel. Trusting in Jesus alone for everything promised and secured in his dying and rising. Trusting him alone. They're trusting Jesus to be all that he said he would be in the gospel amid the pressure of false religion, religious opposition and ethnic tension. So regularly, often, clearly, thank God for what he has done and is doing in the lives of others. Give thanks to God when you hear or witness someone becoming a follower of Jesus. Say thank you, Lord, when you hear of people embracing the gospel through missionary effort. Was that your first response when you heard of what is happening in Mozambique? You are not likely to be enthusiastic, joyful and thankful unless you see saving faith as God's work. Look at it this way. Those of you who were present at Grace Taylor's baptism a few weeks ago, think back what you said to her or said in your own mind if you didn't get to talk to her afterwards. I wasn't there, so I'm not focusing on any particular person. What did you say? From my experience, most people say, congratulations. But that is all wrong. It's not congratulations, but thank you, Father. Not congratulations, because God saves and God alone. Not congratulations, because no one saves themselves. No one comes to faith apart from God. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for rescuing grace and giving her new life. So does your heart sing when you hear and see of God's transforming work in people's lives? Do you give thanks to God for his sovereign work? Do you have an interest in world mission and thank God when you see authentic accounts of people coming to Jesus? Faith in Jesus and also love toward all God's people. We need to remember the time and place. This is a diverse assembly that Paul is writing to. It consists of Jew and Gentile. It was a multi-ethnic congregation. And the times, not just in the um, church, but similar to ours, full of racial and social tension. And God has lifted the lid on a major truth that bears on this point. It's there in verses 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite 
all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He's lifted the lid or taken away the veil and shows that one of his great purpose is to unite people. And Paul sees this being worked out in Ephesus. Jewish believers are loving once detested non-Jews. Non-Jews are relating to, socialising with despised Jewish believers. Your Jewish enemy, your hated Gentile, brothers and sisters, once no connection, now enemies welded together, former enemies welded together in Christ. One new humanity is being formed and you'll see all of that in chapter 2. They are exhibiting costly love to one another. God's sort of love. This is supernatural. So he thanks God. It makes perfect sense when you think about it. No one takes any, well, no one takes any notice of, of, of a Christianity that is simply natural. A Christianity that expresses God's sort of love can't help but be noticed. It's no big deal when people love their family, those who are like them, those who like them, those who share similar interests and outlook on life. That's natural. God's sort of love, extended to others no matter the cost, is supernatural. And that's an inconvenient truth that's cut cuts across much of our cultural baggage and understanding of the gospel. Those of different ethnic identity, those who are awkward, those who are not our level of education, those who are different from us, those who don't like us, those who mistreat us. God produces a change from all these blessings that he's poured out on people, a love for God's varied, diverse and weird people. Because when God intervenes in the lives of people, no matter what skin colour, ethnic background, country of origin, language, education, social status, size of house, annual income or whatever, faith and love show up. And Paul is profoundly thankful to God when he sees it in the Ephesus church. How thankful we must be when we see evidence of God's sort of love demonstrated among his diverse people. Because only God produces that sort of love. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus? Everyone has de-godded God. And there is a judgment to come for that. But God, in his rich and glorious mercy, sent Jesus to rescue anyone who would place their trust in him. 
And if you are a Christian, are you entrusting your future to him? And are you loving the people of God? This event today is not the be-all and end-all of church. What is even more important is the costly, practical love, God-shaped love, that is practised among his people. Then we move to intercession. So he thanks God. Now he makes quite a detailed and extensive request. Multifaceted. Continually ask God that his holy purpose in salvation, that which is knowing him, will be accomplished among his people. And that's the latter part of verse 16 and the first part of 18. If you read through the scriptures, you will find that knowing God is the essence of biblical Christianity. Knowing God can be said to be the heart of Christianity. And the deepest need, whether it's recognised or not, of every single person is to know the triune God. Jesus died to bring people to God, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Knowing God is the central purpose in Jesus' Dying in God's purpose in salvation. Knowing him in the fellowship of the spirit. To know his character, to know his nature, to become familiar with his purposes, to know and love his will as it's revealed in scripture, to live with him as a living, personal, active, real God. But I think Paul has a particular focus here. I think Paul wants his people to know God as their heavenly father. He refers to God God as father often. And it's worth reading it. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 1, 3. 1, 2. Grace to you and peace from God our father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. 117. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, or the glorious Father. 218. For through him, that is Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. A little aside, notice the Trinitarian structure of Paul's thinking. And then 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to know God as our gracious, loving, great, heavenly Father. I know that for some of you that might be a difficult pill to swallow. Your experiences, your experience of fatherhood, 
has made life very difficult for you. I can only say here, it's not easy, but don't allow your thinking about God as father to be controlled by your experience of an earthly father, a bad one. God's people need to know God. To know God as a heavenly father. To hold the father in reverence and awe and relate to him as a child to a loving father. Knowing him as the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this knowing God is a lifelong pursuit and goal. Don't be satisfied with the knowledge of doctrine, though that's essential. Don't be satisfied with mere information about God. Don't become complacent and think you've arrived or I've got it all, I know everything. Don't be happy to stagnate and not grow in your knowledge of God. Ask God to grant his people to grant one another the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they'll come to know God better. Because that's what Paul does. But Paul isn't done yet. He keeps going and asks that God's people will know three things. But to appreciate and um, to know these things, God's people must, in words of verse 18, must have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Funny phrase, that isn't it? The eyes of their hearts. This is what I think he means. Um, Have you ever had this experience? Um, Someone tells a joke... uh, And while everyone is laughing uproariously, you're sitting there thinking, I don't get it. (laughs) Um, You can probably tell by the fact that that's happened to me. Um, And just as everybody uh, is beginning to turn to you and laugh because you're so slow, you suddenly get it. You get it and it impacts you. And you laugh, you, you join in. That's what I think it's along those lines. Not, not the joke, but the getting it. For example, I may know that God is love. Ah, I read about it. People tell me all the time that that's the case. And one day you see it. One day it hits you. It becomes more real than your body. You feel the truth. It overwhelms you. The truth impacts you. It becomes real. He becomes real. His love becomes real. And you treasure it. That's what I think he means about having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Don Carson tells the story of being seriously ill as a child. Um, At one time during it, he woke up to find his mother sitting by his bed crying. And it sort of hit him and he blurted out, 
you really do love me. And he said that made her dissolve into more tears. <laughs> she really does love me. It suddenly, boom, he was enlightened. I think that's what he's talking about. Truth grips the mind and then awakens the affections. We see the truth. We feel it. We know it with the heart. And God wants his people to see and enjoy, to see and savour, to see and relish these things. I think the psalmist had a bit of an idea in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just know that the Lord is good, but taste and see. How does it happen? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit enlightens the eyes of our hearts because here's the, wisdom of, here's the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He reveals God's nature and purpose. The Spirit takes the things that belong to God, the domain of glory, and brings them to us so that we have understanding. But the Spirit also comes and enlightens us so that we see and know. The Spirit gives that enlightenment, that illumination, that delight. He enables us to see and relish the truth, to have the affections of our hearts stirred, to appreciate and enjoy God in his word. Whether we like it or not, we are hard of heart. Slow to see God's priorities. Slow to see how important his word is. So dismal in our love for him that we don't desire him as we should. We need to have the eyes of our hearts open to see the greatness and the glory, the grace and love, the wisdom and the might of God to see it and grasp and treasure it. And that's the work of the Spirit. We need the Spirit. So we've got to ask. It's one of the great weaknesses of much theology that goes under the name Reformed is that, well, well of course you get the Spirit when you're converted. That's it. Well, Paul doesn't seem to agree. He says, ask. Go on asking because it's a continuous. Ask the Spirit to enlighten your fellow believers. Ask that they will know God better. Ask that they will be awakened to glory and grace and love so they feel it. Ask often. Ask regularly. Do you ask on behalf of, other, of God's people? that they'll know God better and relish it. If you don't, will you resolve from today to ask on behalf of God's people? So Paul asks that people will see God or know God and then treasure three things. They're connected, I think. Um, just how, I don't know, but take my word for it. Number three, repeatedly ask God that his people in knowing God will, one, realise where they're heading, 
Two, appreciate their glorious privilege. And three, understand what has happened to them. That's the long section. Um, I'll try and go quickly. No, he asks that they will know these things as an outworking of knowing God. Ask that God's people will realise where they are headed. The, the hope to which he has called you is the pertinent phrase. So he, he's asking that they will know what the future holds for God's people. The end, the goal of salvation, the, is the hope. Something that is there, that is certain, but it's not yet realised. And the hope is the new life with God in the new heaven and the new earth. The time when salvation will come to its fulfilment, when there's no more sin, no more decay, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow, nothing but righteousness and glory. Life with the Lord Jesus at the centre, where our love isn't fickle and faint, but it's steady and sure and we treasure him. This is the hope, the sure and certain prospect that awaits God's people. And Paul says, um, ask, Paul asks that they will know this, that they will um, appreciate this, they'll value this, they'll value what the prospect is in the world to come. And that's so important because knowing that God will complete his work, that that's the end, stabilises and steadies us in the rocky and unstable times we live in. Knowing and savouring the future is so vital. Lose sight of home and you will find it difficult to live and love and rejoice here and now. The trials, the suffering, the opposition, the indifference will swamp you. Florence Chadwick was an American swimmer known for long-distance open-water swimming. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions, setting a time record each time. In 1952, she attempted to swim 21 miles across the Catalina Channel, which is near California. 21 miles? I can't slim more than a bit. The weather that day was not auspicious for the attempt. The ocean was freezing cold. The fog was so thick that she could hardly see the support boats that followed her. And the one good thing was she couldn't see the sharks that were prowling around. Several times her support crew used rifles to drive the sharks away. While Americans watched uh, on television, she swam for hours. Her mother and her trainer, who were in one of the support boats, encouraged her to keep going. However, after 15 hours and 55 minutes, with only half a mile to go, she felt she couldn't go on and asked to be taken out of the water. This is what she said. Look, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land, I know I would have made it. 
The fog had made her unable to see her goal and it had felt to her like she was getting nowhere. A few months later, she creamed it because she could see it. Ask God that his people will not lose sight of home as they navigate the perils of this life. The next blessing the apostle wants his people to get a handle on is to appreciate the glorious privilege that they will enjoy. He talks about the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Keep in mind here that Paul is not talking about our inheritance. You can read about that in 1 Peter 1.4. Paul speaks about his inheritance, God's inheritance. God's people, wait for it, God's people are his inheritance. God the Father has given the church to his Son, his gift to the Saviour. Remember back to the blessings. One of them is highlighted in verses 4 to 6. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, that is, heirs, through Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? The church is God's inheritance gift to his son. He's got to be joking, surely. But he's not. Remember that God sees his people in Christ. His valuation of his people is determined by his valuation of his son and the righteousness that has been imparted to them. So he says, ask for the eyes of God's people to be open to realise and appreciate this, their immense privilege. Ask that his people will live with the realisation that they are immensely valuable to God because they've been given his righteousness. Not because we're wonderful, not because in ourselves we've got anything that would merit that, but because we've been given Christ's righteousness. Here's something to chew on. Isn't that staggering? I quote. Isn't that staggering? God Almighty, who could have provided anything he wanted for his enjoyment in eternity, has chosen to enjoy forever with saved and sanctified sinners like us. It's utterly mind-blowing. He's predestined, redeemed, adopted and sealed sinful wretches like us as his children to become the bride for his beloved son. And his plan is to bring us all on vocation into the glories of his eternal rest, to enjoy our company and shower us with abundant blessings forever as his inheritance. Unquote. There are some people whose home I enjoy visiting because they are so welcoming. For some reason that I haven't discovered... Um, they enjoy having, uh, I mean, having me and it's lovely to feel so welcomed. That's a little taste of what it's like to be God's inheritance and experience his gracious kindness when we come home. Now, I know many Christians presume on this and don't really care how they live bother to fight sin. Oh, I'm God's child and safe and secure forever. If that's you, 
you do not understand anything at all about God's grace. Why does Paul ask God to give these people an appreciation for their, this enormous privilege? Because of the situation now. It doesn't look like we're precious to God. I've been in conversation recently with someone who fights melancholy, loneliness and rejection. It doesn't look like they're favoured and blessed. It doesn't look like the Father rejoices over them. So I must ask the Father to open the eyes of their hearts to see and feel this truth and so press on faithfully, looking forward to that great day. You see, the enemies of Christ are strong. The world, the flesh, the devil are a constant, dangerous and powerful trio. Christians often succumb to temptation. We sin every day. It's vital to have this perspective if we're going to fight on. We will reach home. Pray that people will know that. God is favourably disposed to his people. Struggling, honest, humble sinners need to know that. Pray for them. Pray for others that the Spirit will enlighten them to see and embrace and value this truth. Then he asks God, lastly, that his people will know what has happened to them. The incomparably great power for us who believe. Unlike our modern world, Paul uses superlatives um, very judiciously. And there's one there, the incomparably great power. What power comes to your mind when you contemplate life-changing power or awesome power if that word isn't completely devalued. Niagara Falls, an 8.1 magnitude earthquake, a tsunami, a solar flare, cyclone Saroja, out of control bushfire, creation. None of those get a Guernsey, interestingly enough. Paul talks about, firstly, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Death is smashed, Satan is defeated, sin is destroyed, the first fruits of the future resurrection are sown. This is the power that God exercised in his people. The power that God exerted in exalting Jesus in the second place. Um, verses 20 and 21. Above all the authorities in the cosmos stands the risen Lord Jesus. As the outworking of his perfect obedience in dying and his triumphant resurrection, God exalts Jesus over everything. The world isn't ultimately governed by presidents, dictators, kings or parliaments. Jesus occupies the highest station. Above all the powers, all the authorities, above everything, the power that put him there is the power that God exerted in those who belong to him. And then thirdly, the authority Jesus is given over everything. Christ is head over everything. He's the ultimate, the highest, the supreme authority. I've already seen that. What, what's with the repetition? You probably would have noticed it by now. He's supreme over everything for his people. He's head over everything for his body. He exercises this authority for the sake of his church, for his church. 
God's authority is mediated through someone with a human face. God's supreme power over all things has a thorn-scarred face. He rules for his people. Not a moment is outside his control. Not a drop of rain falls that's not under his rule. Not a word of a government legislation is outside his direction. Nowhere, no one is outside the universal dominion of King Jesus. The man, the God-man, is in that position because God has put him there. This is the mighty power. This is the point of Paul's um, comment. This mighty power is what brings people to believe and love. You see, conversion is a spiritual resurrection. It is a mighty work of God comparable to raising him from the dead and placing him over everything and giving him as head of the church. It's a mighty work of God. Conversion is raising the dead to life. It's snatching someone from the jaws of hell and Satan. It's bringing the hopelessly lost home. It's dispelling the darkness. It is life-transforming power and only God has that power. So Paul says, ask. Incidentally, that's why Paul says three things, three times, to the praise of his glorious grace. This power brings to life people who are totally... Totally and hopelessly dead in sin. You'll see that spelled out in the first part of chapter 2. This power brings divided people together who have nothing in common and forms them into one new humanity. And you'll see that spelled out in the latter part of chapter 2. This power produces godliness and likeness to the Saviour and you'll see it spelled out in chapter 4 onwards. He wants every believer to know what has happened to them. He wants every Christian to appreciate what God has done. Why? So they continually trust God in dangerous, difficult and distressing times. So they demonstrate God's costly love to God's people. So they constantly thankful for God's utterly amazing grace. There are any young Christians here today, you are in Christ because the triune God has rescued you and saved you. Praise him. In the struggle for faith and the struggle against doubt and error, you can be sure that God's power is adequate. And that he will complete what he's begun. Philippians 1.6 This is the incomparable power that God exerts for and in his people. So ask so that his struggling people who want to know him will continue on because they're aware of what God has done and is doing. So to wrap up. Oh, it's only quarter to nine. I've got plenty of time to go. <laughs> 
to wrap up, God has chosen his people before the world was created. He's predestined them for adoption. He's redeemed them. He's given them his spirit. And they have heard the word of truth, the gospel of his salvation. And that grace has shown itself in faith and love. So how about we thank God every time we see faith and love in action? Shouldn't we be giving thanks every Sunday for what God is doing in places around the world? An intense interest in missions, hearing of God's saving work in the world is vital to thankfulness, by the way. And we won't be thankful unless we are utterly convinced that salvation is entirely God's work. But thank God for his grace in people. Thank God for his people who demonstrate faith and love. And ask the Father for the Spirit to enlighten his people that we would know God better and more deeply and love him and treasure him all the more. Ask that his people will see and savour where they're going and so live well now. Ask that his people will see and realise what incredible privilege it is to be the people of God. And so we won't succumb to the attacks and the, the, the criticism and the ridicule. Ask that God's people will know and appreciate the power that is work, at work in them. So they don't give up, but press on. Will you make it a priority to pray, to ask for your fellow believers? Let's pray. Lord God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, please awaken and sustain our hope in you. Be our treasure now and always, and be our inheritance always. Please open the eyes of our hearts to see your glory and the wonder that you are. Grant us the spiritual taste buds to taste and see and value that all you are for us in Jesus is better than anything in all the world offers. And sustain our hope. May this hope fuel our endurance. And may this endurance support our love for one another. And may our love make you irresistibly attractive to the world. And Father, if there's anyone present or listening whose spiritual eyes have not been opened... Please do that now. Reveal to them the true glory of the Lord Jesus and lead them to put their trust in you. Amen.